Section 65 of The Toilers of the Sea. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 2 How Shakespeare and Aeschylus Can Meet. Gilead had his own idea. Since the time of that mason carpenter of Salbris, who in the sixteenth century, in the infancy of science, long before Amontons had discovered the first, Lahire the second, and Coulomb the third law of friction, without counsel, without guidance, with no other aid than that of a child, his son, with an ill-shaped set of tools, resolved at one stroke, during the lowering of the great clock of the church of Charité-sur-Loire, five or six problems of statics and dynamics intermingled like the wheels in an entanglement of carts, and presenting an obstacle simultaneously, since that superb and marvelous feat which found means without breaking even a brass wire, and without unsettling a gearing, to lower in one piece, by a wonderful simplication, from the second story of the bell-tower to the first, that massive case of the hours, all of iron and copper, as large as the chamber of the night watchman, with its movement, its cylinders, its barrels, its drums, its hooks and balances, its spindle for the hour-hand and its spindle for the minute-hand, its horizontal pendulum, its escarpments, its masses of big chains and little chains, its stone weights, one of which weighed five hundred pounds, its striking weight and chimes, its jacks that strike the hours, since the day of that man who had performed that miracle, and whose name is no longer known, nothing parallel to what Gilead meditated doing had ever been undertaken. The operation which Gilead had undertaken was worse, perhaps, that is to say, still more beautiful. The weight, the delicacy, the intricacy of difficulties were no less in the case of the Durand's machinery than in that of the clock of charité sur loire the Gothic carpenter had an assistant, his son. Gilliat was alone. A crowd of spectators was there, who had come from meung sur loire Nevers, and even from Orléans, who could, in case of need, render assistance to the mason of Salbris, and who encouraged him by their friendly uproar. Gilliat had around him no other noise than that of the wind, and no other throng than the waves. Nothing equals the timidity of ignorance except its temerity. When ignorance sets out but to dare, it is because it has a compass within it. This compass is the intuition of the true, often more clear in a simple than in an enlightened mind. Ignorance invites to an attempt. Ignorance is reverie, and reverie is a curious force. Knowledge sometimes disconcerts and often dissuades. Gamma, had he known, would have recoiled before the cape of storms. If Christopher Columbus had been a good cosmographer, he would not have discovered America. The second person to ascend Mont Blanc was a learned man, Saussure. The first was a shepherd, Balma. These cases, let us remark in passing, are the exception and all this detracts nothing from science which remains the rule. The ignorant man may discover, the learned man alone invents. The boat was still anchored in the cove of the man, where the sea left it tranquil. 
Iliad, it will be remembered, had arranged something so as to maintain free communication with his vessel. He proceeded thither, and carefully measured her beam at various points, particularly her midship frame. Then he returned to the Durande and measured the greatest diameter of the bottom of the machinery. This diameter, minus the wheels, of course, was two feet less than the greatest beam of the boat. Hence the engine could go in the boat. But how was he to get it into the boat? End of chapter 2. How Shakespeare and Aeschylus Can Meet.